Well, Phil Johnson needs no introduction, I'm sure, to any of you, so I'm not going to take a bunch of time doing that. Um, anytime you listen to Grace to You, you will hear his voice. Um, whenever uh, you read John MacArthur's books, you will hear some of his voice as well. And I have to tell you, I am indebted to Phil because he has co-labored with my friend and mentor John MacArthur all these years and thank you Phil for all that you have done. What an impact they have had and others have had on so many millions of people around the world and we give God all of the glory but we thank you and we're so glad that you're here with your dear wife Darlene. We've had an opportunity to reminisce from all the way back in the 70s when we were at Moody and then when we were out teaching at, at Masters and our kids used to play together and all of that type of thing. So anyway, it's been a wonderful time having them here. So Phil, come and minister the word to us, brother. taken from home since the quarantine began uh, a year ago, exactly a year ago this week. So uh, there's something liberating about being here. It feels great. And tonight I want to look at a psalm with you. I gave, I gave Dave a couple of options on what I might speak on and uh, because all of us have been burdened with extra trials for the past year, he chose two messages that really are aimed at downtrodden and discouraged people. And so I want to start with Psalm 17. That'll be our study this evening. This psalm is a prayer to God, and its content suggests that it was written in one of the outlaw periods of David's life, either when he was young and on the run from King Saul, or, uh, you know, King Saul saw him as a threat, by the way, to, and wanted him dead. Uh, or this could be from David's later life when he was in exile after his own son Absalom wrested the throne from him and drove him into exile again. And, and in fact, David's public ministry was bookended by those times of severe affliction during which he lived as a fugitive, uh, living under a severe hardship, burdened with grief, tormented by every conceivable tribulation, you know, it was the polar opposite of a life of luxury in the royal palace. And so this is the heart cry of a downtrodden soul. The title simply identifies it as a prayer of David. And what it is is the outpouring of David's troubled heart from one of those difficult periods in his life and ministry. It reminds us that the best of saints often suffer the worst of sorrows, and when they do... It is right for them to pour out their hearts to God in perfect, unbridled honesty. And that's what David is doing here. Total honesty, because anything else would be insincere. And, and God, who knows our hearts, does not want any pretense when we come to him in prayer. The best prayers are honest and passionate expressions of earnest hearts, and, and that is true whether your heart is full of rejoicing or whether you are in severe distress. And in fact, there's never any encouragement anywhere in Scripture to stifle our frustrations or, 
or uh, quiet our disappointments when we come to God in prayer. He wants us to speak to him in all honesty. And in fact, if there's one time when you can be totally transparent, it's when you pray. Because as David says in Psalm 139, verse 2, God can discern our thoughts from afar. He already knows. In fact, Psalm 139, verse 4, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. And furthermore, Scripture expressly encourages us to come boldly and to pour out our hearts before God in a way that a little child would come to a loving and tender father. And one thing that is instantly obvious to anyone who's in ministry is that there are a lot of downtrodden people. There are people, I'm sure, right in this room who bear unimaginable sorrows, people who struggle with grief and pain and physical affliction or loneliness and despair and overwhelming discouragement, hurts and disappointments, depression and heartache and troubles of all kinds. Here is a prayer for such people. Now, I'm not the type of person who struggles very often with melancholy. The Lord has blessed me with the generally cheerful nature, uh, but there are times when I do get gloomy and discouraged, and it's usually when deadlines loom or, or my workload becomes overwhelming, and, and frankly, a year of COVID restrictions hasn't done my mood any good. So I do know what despondency and discouragement feel like, and I know that a feeling of depression can become an overwhelming and energy-draining burden. And in fact, in my experience, I would say a depressed state of mind is one of the most difficult burdens to bear. I think it's, it's worse, frankly, sometimes than conventional grief when you lose a loved one. Just that oppressive depression is even worse because if we're not careful, we get even more depressed about the fact that we're depressed and life just starts to look bleaker and bleaker, and the weight of that burden seems to crush all hope and snuff out the fire of life. And I know some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. David was in that state of mind when he wrote this psalm. And so whether this was written early when he was a young man, when he was on the run from Saul, or as I'm more inclined to think later in his mature life when he was hiding from his own son, Absalom, David was suffering either way from the loss of everything that was rightfully his. Those two periods, one at the beginning and one at the end of his ministry, had a lot in common because both times people who should have supported him abandoned him. He, he was cut off from his home, his family, his friends, living the life of an outcast and a vagabond, suffering public disgrace and dishonor that he did not deserve. And so he was lonely and disconsolate and heartbroken. It seemed like his whole life was disintegrating. And it was in that state of mind when he wrote this psalm. Now, in a state of mind like that, most of us are tempted to brood and pout David had a pattern when he was depressed. He always turned to the Lord in prayer. And this psalm is the result. And actually, it's one of many prayers that 
David recorded while he was struggling with depression and resentment. And I'm glad that the Psalms contain so many of those prayers. They are included in God's Word for a reason. And it's for us, for our benefit. And I find that Psalms like this are a better tonic than a hundred counseling sessions because they show us the way through our miseries. The psalmists never fail to rise above their troubles and refocus our vision on something better. And that is the case with this psalm. This is a, a wonderful model of prayer for several reasons. In its candor, just blatant honesty, its simplicity and its brevity, it's a short prayer, and most of all, it's passion. This is a passionate expression of prayer to God. It's full of wonderfully rich lessons about the God to whom we pray. And you remember, David is described in Scripture as a man after God's own heart. I think his prayers are probably the best barometer of what that means because he just lays his heart bare when he comes before the throne of grace. If you want to understand what it means to be a man or a woman after God's own heart, just look at the, the heart of the psalmist as it is revealed in his prayers. This, is, this one has four stanzas, and each one is a unique plea to God. So we'll take these stanzas and let them be our outline, and we'll look at them one at a time. The first stanza, they're all about four verses. The first one is verses 1 through 4. We'll title this one, Hear Me. That's the plea, Hear Me. He opens with a cry for God to listen to his prayer. And notice how three times in the first verse alone, he pleads with God to hear him. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. Three times in one verse. And then he goes on, verse 2, from your presence, let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. Now, several things to notice about this. First of all, it is a cry. He describes it that way. This is the spontaneous outpouring of a troubled and agitated heart. It's, so it's urgent. It's emotional. It's earnest. It's, it's an expression that David could not keep bottled up. This is not a rehearsed oration. He's not reciting something that he's written ahead of time. He's not trying to impress the Lord with eloquence. He's aiming to just unburden his heart. He's not aiming for literary style. He, he is deeply troubled and distressed. And it's the bitterness and pain of those feelings that compel him to, to cry out to God. Spurgeon said this about that. He said, a cry is a brief thing and a bitter thing. He said, a, a cry has in it much meaning and no music. You cannot set a cry to music, Spurgeon said, the sound grates on the ear, it rasps the heart, it startles, and it grieves the minds of those who hear it. Cries are not for musicians, but for mourners. You know, a cry is actually the most natural expression in the world because it doesn't require any kind of skill or eloquence. It's the first sound we make as infants, a cry. 
It's the most basic way of letting our needs be known. A cry is full of passion, not ornate language, so it's, it's meant to be earnest rather than eloquent. And, and that's how all of our praying ought to be. The point is to open our hearts honestly to God. When we pray, it's not supposed to be to achieve a flowery literary style. And this was the kind of cry that could not be suppressed. And for that reason, it's notable for its honesty. Verse 1, David says, It comes from lips free of deceit. It's unlike the public prayers of the Pharisees, you know, unlike too many of our prayers even. This one is as sincere and as truthful and as straightforward as possible. He pleads with God to hear his cause because he's convinced it's a just cause. So, In fact, before coming to God with this prayer, David had examined his heart and cleared his conscience. So what he's praying about here are issues that he has obviously brought before the Lord him before, perhaps again and again, and he pleads his own uprightness. Verse 3, you have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me, and you will find nothing. That's the expression of someone who's been through this before with God. And that, by the way, is not, when he says, you, you tested me and you won't find anything, this is not an expression of pharisaical self-righteousness. We know that David is not claiming that he is utterly free from sin in every respect. We know he wasn't. He admitted that he wasn't. But here he's merely saying that in this instance, the troubles that have befallen him are not through any fault of his own. He didn't do anything to earn this trial that he's going through. There's no conscious hypocrisy or or careless infusion of wickedness into this prayer. He's examined his heart. In fact, he says God has visited him in the night and examined his heart, and, and all of that has brought nothing sinister to light. So whatever the reason for David's misfortunes, it hasn't been brought on him because of some hidden sin or unconfessed transgression. David had done the hard work of self-examination before he ever brought this petition before the Lord, and his own conscience and, and heart are clear before the Lord. And in fact, verse 3, he says, I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the way of the violent, the ways of the violent. So although... He might have been tempted to lash back at his enemies or complain about his circumstances or murmur against God or otherwise employ some kind of insult or abuse or some verbal assault in return for the bad treatment he's receiving. He hadn't done any of those things. He had purposed not to let this trial cause him to sin with his mouth, and with the help of God's word, he had been faithful to that pledge. But now he couldn't keep silent any longer. And so he calls out with this prayer. It's really just a cry. It's an outburst of passion. And he pleads with God to hear him, which is significant because think about this. What do most of us do when we feel depressed or weighed down with troubles or, or when we start feeling like an outcast it's, it is, I think, a sinful tendency of most of us to want to broadcast our complaint, to talk to other people, sometimes talk to as many people as possible and, and express our victimhood. It's really the, 
the besetting sin of our generation. We all want to portray ourselves as victims and seek the sympathy of other people, first of all. And, you know, it's actually pretty easy to give voice to your complaints even during the prayer request time at a home Bible study. And, of course, there's nothing wrong with legitimately seeking help and prayer support from other people when we're carrying a heavy burden. That is legitimate. But that's not the first remedy we should seek. We should do what David did and, first of all, take those complaints to the Lord. And, in fact, here's a a great lesson to learn from David's example in this psalm. When you are seeking support and encouragement from other people, do that, but save your complaining for the Lord. Give it to him alone in your private prayer because you can be as honest with him as you like. Pray the way David did, from an unfeigned heart, and you can be sure that God will hear your prayer. In fact, the Lord not only heard this prayer, think about it, he preserved it in the canon of Scripture. So David's very first petition has clearly been answered. Stanza 1. Stanza 2, starting with verse 5, this is David's second petition. We'll call it Hold Me, verses 5 through 7. Here's more evidence that David's plea in verses 3 and 4 is not a self-righteous boast. He acknowledges that the only way he can keep from sinning is by God's power. My steps have held fast fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior, of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Now, verse 5, it's been translated different ways in different versions. I want to stress, this is not a boast when he says, my steps have held fast, fast to your paths. This is a plea for God's upholding power. And in fact, it's worded that way in some translations. Here's how the New King James Version of verse 5 has it. Uphold my steps in your paths that my foot may not slip. Because David knows that he lacks the stability to walk the path without slipping on his own. So he's pleading with the Lord to hold him, to keep him from slipping. He's acknowledging God as his Savior, verse 7. O Savior, he calls him that, the Savior of all those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Not only has God saved him from sin, he acknowledges that God alone can save him from his enemies. In fact, this is a constant theme with David. Listen to what, listen to Psalm 33, verses 16 and through 20. I, I'll read it. You don't need to turn there. Psalm 33, the king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and shield. So, there's an implicit acknowledgement of the sovereignty of God in all of this. David is expressing his conviction that God alone has the power to save him from his enemies. And he seems to have full confidence 
that the Lord will ultimately save him. So, so what does that say about the fact that for now, right now, as he prays this prayer, those enemies seem to have the upper hand? David realizes, because he's got sound theology, he knows that God has permitted this. God, in his sovereignty, has allowed it because he has a purpose in it. And only God can then direct David's steps through the midst of it. David recognizes he is dependent on God's grace. That's the implicit confession throughout this prayer. Unless God himself upholds our steps, our feet will slide. And then in verse 6, he expresses confidence that God will also hear him. I call upon you for you will answer me, O God. He knows that. But just the same, he prays once more for the Lord to listen. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. It's interesting. He starts by saying, he starts that phrase by saying, God will answer me. And then he prays again for God to hear him. So follow the progression here. The first stanza, hear me. The second stanza, hold me. Here's the third plea, verse 8, hide me. He seeks both protection and comfort from the Lord. He says, keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. From the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me, they close their hearts to pity. With their mouths they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He's like a lion eager to tear, as a young lion lurking in ambush. So David's describing here a situation that is desperate and urgent. His enemies have him hemmed in, surrounded, verse 11. He he portrays them like a hungry lion that has tracked him and cornered him and now crouching ready to pounce. And David is probably holed up somewhere, maybe in a cave. He did a lot of hiding in caves. He's just out of sight from his enemies. And so he prays to God for protection. And I love this expression, keep me as the apple of your eye. My dad used to tell my mom that she was the apple of his eye. And when I was a little kid, I always thought, that's a strange expression. But in my imagination, it was like he was telling her that she was like an apple, like a shiny red apple that he had his eye on because it really looked good, you know, or something like that. But that's not the idea here. David is speaking about the eye itself, the eyeball. He's actually... Even more specific than that, if you go to the Hebrew, the word he uses there is a reference to the pupil, that black spot in the middle of your center of your eye. And the Hebrew word is actually an expression that means the little man, the little man of your eye. It's literally, keep me like the little man of your eye. Now, what's he talking about there? Here's something you may never have noticed. If you look very closely into someone else's eye, right into the pupil, that little dark spot, and look very carefully into the dead center, you can actually see your own face reflected back in a miniature mirror image. So if you look at the pupil, it actually looks like there's a little man in there looking back at you. And so in the Hebrew language, the pupil, that black spot in your eye, it was known as the little man of the eye. That's what the language means. And so David says, protect me like you would protect the pupil in your own eye. That's really one of the most delicate, tender, and most sensitive parts of the human body. 
Because of that, God has actually built a series of defense mechanisms into you to protect your eye. First of all, your, the, your eye socket is surrounded by bone, and your eye is set back into your head so that your cheekbone protrudes from below and your forehead protects it from above, and then it's further protected by eyelashes and eyelids, and there's always a thin film of tears that lubricate and protect your eye as well, and it is so sensitive, you ever thought about this, that your eye can feel the tiniest dust particle. There's not many other body parts that are sensitive enough to feel the presence of a tiny microscopic speck. But the, th the remarkable thing about your eye is the reflex that causes you to blink whenever anything comes close to your eye. And it's almost an involuntary reflex. It's, it's not when you have easily your own control over it. It's the quickest reflex you have, the blink of an eye. And your natural human instinct is to protect your eyes no matter what. And if you wear contact lenses, you probably know what I mean. I started wearing contacts in college, and it was very hard for me to learn at first to stick something into my eye. I still wear contacts, and to this day, in order to, these are reading glasses so I can see my notes, but behind it I have contact lenses, and to this day I have to literally hold my eyelids open with one eye in order to poke that lens in the other eye. And if I tried to do it without holding the eyelids open, I couldn't do it, just couldn't do it, because the urge to blink is too powerful. And David is pleading with God to protect him the way a man protects the pupil of his eye, which means do it without delay, do it without hesitation, do it the moment the danger of a threat appears. Do it reflexively, you know, swiftly, in the blink of an eye. And then he switches metaphors, second half of verse 8. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. And that speaks, of course, of the protection that a, a large bird like an eagle would give to its young. And it evokes the idea of not only shelter but warmth and hiding. David's asking God not only to hide him from his enemies, keep them from seeing him, but he also wants a place where he can hide so that he doesn't have to see the threat that they pose to him. So he, he doesn't want them to find him, obviously. But more important, I think he wants to be sheltered by God from having to worry about them, to think about them, or be aware of them even. He'd prefer to be like a baby bird under the mother's wings, unaware of and unconcerned about any dangers that loom overhead. And I can relate to that, right? Can you? You know, it's one thing to turn your worries over to the Lord by faith. It's another thing to really be rid of those worries, to forget about our concerns so that we are truly and genuinely anxious for nothing. You know, we quote those verses, First Peter 5, 7, casting all your care on him for he cares for you. And Philippians 4, 6, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. But I think we all have a sinful tendency to want to keep a grip on our own anxieties as if we really don't trust the Lord to be concerned enough on our, our behalf. So we still worry, even after we've turned something over to the Lord. And David is praying that God would shelter him in a way that would keep him hidden from those who were trying to, to trouble him 
And he also wanted to keep them hidden from him as well so he could just let go of the worry. This is a huge request because at that very moment, David was surrounded by enemies, verse 9, deadly enemies who surround me. And look at verse 10. They closed their hearts to pity. The literal Hebrew expression says that they are enclosed in their own fat. He's describing them as smug and self-satisfied from a human perspective David's enemies seemed to have the upper hand against him. (coughs) Their hearts were callous and fat and totally closed off, hostile towards David. And they only wanted to destroy him. They had chased him until he couldn't run any further. And and their hearts were set on his destruction. They were literally crouching and prepared to pounce. And he desperately needed God's help. And that's his fourth supplication. Help me, verses 13 through 15. And this petition brings us to the real point of David's prayer. This whole prayer is a desperate plea for God's help. Verse 13, arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Now, several things to notice about this. First of all, you see David's great faith even in a seemingly hopeless situation. He's just described how his enemy has got him surrounded and and he's crouching like a lion ready to pounce. Now you see that he still has complete confidence that the Lord can deliver him out of even a hopeless situation like this. The Lord wields a, a sword that no wickedness can stand against. And in fact, on second thought, the Lord doesn't even need a sword, verse 14. He can delivered David with nothing but his hand. <clears throat> and David describes it that way. First of all, he talks about the sword, and in the very next verse, he talks about the Lord's hand. And second, notice how David describes his enemies as men whose vision is totally earthbound. They have their portion in this life, he says. So they're rich with treasure. They are Their houses are filled with children. He describes all this. They've received these blessings from God, whether they acknowledge that or not. But they don't see beyond the earthly value of their own wealth and riches and the blessings God has given to them. Verse 14, they're satisfied with children and they leave their abundance to their infants. In other words, they're already planning on how to divide the family estate among their children And that is as far into the future as they can see. (coughs) Sorry. So so they're planning how to distribute the family fortune, and, and they can't see any further ahead than that. All of their hopes, all their expectations are tied to this life and this temporal world. They are utter worldlings. They have no hope of heaven and no concern about eternity And in that myopic vision lies the seed of all their wickedness. They're infatuated with this world, and therefore they are enemies with God, because to be a friend of this world is to be an enemy of God, James tells us. 
Now, David's worldview is entirely different, and he makes that point. Verse 15 is one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. As for me, David says, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I'll be satisfied with your likeness. They're satisfied with their children. I'll be satisfied when I see the Lord. David's saying, my hope is beyond this life and beyond this world. And what I'm looking for is something that will not come in this life, but I will be satisfied when I awaken with your likeness in heaven. He's looking to heaven. The center of his greatest hope and longing is something that can only be realized in eternity. It's not something that pertains to this life. And therefore, it's not something that can be shaken by the troubles of this life. This is the climax and the culmination of David's prayer. This is the real and ultimate answer to all of his frustration. You see, it's true that God is able to deliver him from his troubles. It's true that God has the power to thwart David's enemies' murderous plans, but And in fact, God could solve his problems instantly and once and for all. We know that because there were places in the Old Testament where the earth opened up literally and swallowed the people who opposed the Lord. That could happen. But you know what? Even if that happened, David's saying, it still wouldn't be as satisfying as the ultimate thing that David longs for. And even if it didn't happen, even if God didn't deliver him from this crisis, the day would certainly come when David would behold God's face in righteousness and awake with his likeness, and that would more than compensate for all of the earthly troubles David ever had to endure. Here's the anchor for anyone who is downcast. Keep the center of your focus in eternity. That's the lesson of this psalm. Don't be distracted by the anguish and the hardship of this life because a time is coming when all of that will be done away and we will be perfectly and eternally satisfied. Cling to that hope. Hope. Hope is the biblical term for this kind of perspective on life, where our focus, the focus of our desires and our attention and everything is anchored in heaven. Scripture labels that with that one simple word, hope, hope. When Paul lists faith, hope, and love as the three supreme virtues This is what he's talking about, this forward-looking expectation. That's what he means by hope. And one day it will be fulfilled, so we don't have to take anything by faith or look towards anything with hope. And love will be, that's why love is the, the greatest of all the virtues. It'll still be there. But what we need right now is that hope, that sense of positive expectation of heaven. And so when, you know, when we use the word hope, usually in our conversation, we're often speaking about a kind of vague desire that may or may not be fulfilled, and it, you know, probably won't. For a lot of people, the idea of hope is, is tied up in uh, the vain wish that they might one day win the lottery. And in fact, right now I'm watching scores come in from spring training, and I, and I say, I hope the Cubs have a winning season. Maybe they will. Maybe that kind of hope will be realized. But let's be honest, it probably won't be. It's the Cubs. And we use the word hope that way, but it's actually, that's a corruption of the biblical idea of hope. 
we have really scaled down the concept of what hope is. In its biblical sense, the word hope means something that is sure and steadfast. And, and that was the original connotation of, of hope, the word. It's a sure and certain expectation. And the true meaning of hope is, is filled with assurance and expectation and certainty and conviction. Notice how emphatic David is, verse 15. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. He uses a word there that speaks of certainty. I will see your face. There's confidence and security in those words. And that's what Scripture means when it speaks about hope. This thing keeps falling down. Sorry. And here's the amazing thing about David's prayer. Notice this starts out as a, as a prayer for help. It ends up as an expression of hope because while David was praying, his help came. Isaiah 64, verse 25, God makes, or verse 24, God makes this promise. He says, it will come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. That's exactly what happened here. David starts out with the prayer, Lord, hear me. The Lord did hear him, and he answered while he was speaking, while he was praying for help, the help came. But notice, it didn't come in the form David might have envisioned. It wasn't a miraculous deliverance from his earthly enemies. The clouds didn't open up for a bolt of lightning to consume David's adversaries. His troubles didn't simply disappear. The crisis wasn't swept away, but something even better happened. The Lord used this prayer to refocus David's heart. And then he filled him with this supernatural hope and confidence that lifted him up out of his problems. And you might think, be thinking, well, that's not the kind of answer to my prayer I want. I want the Lord to make the problems go away. I, I want him to take the trouble out of my life. I would rather be rid of my problems than to be filled with hope in the midst of them. And if that's the way you think, you don't appreciate the power of this kind of hope. This is a greater deliverance than a deliverance from an external enemy. This is a spiritual deliverance from David's own fear and frustration. This is an uplifting, energizing baptism of hope and earnest expectation that refocused David's vision, his attention, his concerns where he needed to be focused on eternal things, on the assurance of ultimate victory, and on the confidence of a final outcome that would make all of this worthwhile. And as David clung to that hope, his fear and his frustration are overwhelmed with confidence and gratitude and, and a wonderful spirit of assurance and reliance on the Lord. And that's the note the psalm ends on, even though it began with his cry about his troubles. It ends with a note of hope, and that kind of hope is a panacea for human woes. No matter what kind of depression or anxiety or fear or distress you might suffer, this is the cure. Fix your gaze into eternity and set your hope on the assurance of that this time will come when you will see the face of God himself in righteousness and you will bear the perfect likeness of Christ. The Apostle John wrote about that very thing, 1 John 3, verses 2 and 3. Beloved, he says, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know 
that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. We'll see his face in righteousness. And he says, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. If you struggle with sinful thoughts or evil imaginations or fears, doubts, worries, depression, anxiety, or any other sins of the heart, sins related to a downcast heart, here's the answer. Fix your hope on the guarantee of future triumph, and you will find it has a purifying effect. In fact, notice, let me give you five things to notice about hope, this virtue that keeps us gazing into eternity. Five truths about it that you need to bear in mind. Number one, it's a cure for, for envy. It's a cure for envy. David contrasts himself in verse 14 with men of the world whose portion is in this life, filled with treasure, satisfied with children. They leave their abundance to their infants. These are men who have every kind of earthly blessing you could ever crave. They have treasure, they have children, they have more than they will ever need. So their greatest worry is about how to divide the the legacy between the kids, which sounds like a secure and comfortable life, right? But that's wrong. It's emptiness because these men, Scripture says, have their portion in this life. That is their portion. That is the only bequest, and those are the only blessings that they will ever receive from the Lord. And it's all temporal. It's all earthly. Moth and rust will eventually corrupt it and eat it away to nothing, and within a few generations it will all be forgotten because it counts for nothing in eternity. These men are like the, the rich man in the story of Lazarus and the the afterlife. You remember in this life, that rich man was, Scripture says, clothed in purple and fine linen, and he fared sumptuously every day. He had every earthly thing he could ever want, and he was satisfied with it. He didn't know the Lord. He didn't care about eternity. Didn't care about the righteous man, Lazarus, right outside his gate. Lazarus covered with sores, who was so poor that he would eat the scraps that fell from the rich man's table, but instead those scraps were given to dogs, and Lazarus's only earthly comfort and companionship came from those dogs who licked his sores. I mean, think about it. As Jesus describes it, can you think of anything more pathetic? He was as miserable and downtrodden in this life as it's possible to be, but in the afterlife, it was a completely different picture. Lazarus was exalted. He was carried into Abraham's bosom. In other words, he was given the highest place of honor at Abraham's table, and the rich man was reduced to begging for a drop of water in hell. And that's how it was going to be with David's enemies. David knows that. He doesn't envy these men. He doesn't seek what they had and wish it was his. His focus is set on eternity, and that cured him from the tendency to covet earthly things you you know have you ever found yourself fantasizing about what you would do if someone gave you a winning lottery ticket I, I know you don't play the lottery yourselves because you're pretty much like Baptists and Baptists don't gamble right but what if somebody gave you a lottery ticket and it won you plan how you would 
spend the money and you entertain yourself with imaginary thoughts about what it would be like to be rich, that's not a healthy fantasy to engage in. It's covetousness. And in fact, the next time you find yourself thinking that way, here's a, here's a suggestion. Remind yourself that you as a believer in Christ have an even greater hope. Winning the lottery is nothing compared to what you have, and it's a certainty, not a wish, like winning the lottery, but you will see God's face in, right, in righteousness. You will awaken with his likeness. That's what will truly satisfy you if you're a believer. And so if you want to feed your mind with the thoughts of what it would be like to be rich, feast on the hope of what will surely be yours in eternity. It's a great cure for covetousness here on earth. Second, it's a cure for fear. Notice, by the end of this psalm, David is no longer fearful of what his foes might do to him. Because think about it. What is the absolute worst they could ever do to him? Kill him? Then he would awaken satisfied. Could they torture him and cause him earthly pain? For a while, maybe. But he was guaranteed an eternity of perfect blessing. Psalm 118, verse 6, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Psalm 56, verse 4, In God I have put my trust. I will not fear what flesh can do unto me. Psalm 3, verses 5 and 6, The Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me. And the Psalms are full of expressions like that. Listen to Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked, even my enemies and my foes, come upon me to eat my flesh, they stumble and fall. Though a host should encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war should rise against me, in this I will be confident. Think of it. How how could David in so many desperate situations throughout his life, rise above his fear? And the answer is because he clung to an eternal hope that overwhelmed all temporal fear. Hope is a, a great cure for that. Third, hope is a cure for doubt. Listen to his confidence. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I'm, I'm certain. I know this will happen. No matter what else happens to me here on earth, this much is sure. I will behold the Lord's face. I will be satisfied. You can just hear the hope in David's declarations as, as this hope, this sense of hope, overpowers and erases any doubt or uncertainty he had about his future. So it's a cure for doubt. Fourth, it's a cure for depression. Nothing lifts me out of depression faster than some careful reflection about the promises God has made regarding an eternity where there will be no more tears or sorrow or crying or pain. Romans eight twenty two and 23, I preached on this text recently. The whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. He's acknowledging, Paul is, that even Christians feel this groaning sensation. We groan inwardly, he says, as we await for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. But, he goes on the next verse, verse 24, 
we are saved by hope. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? In other words, if you insist on seeing the fulfillment of these promises before you lay hold of the promises, you actually forfeit the virtue of hope. One of the reasons God delays his help is is for this merciful and gracious purpose. He wants us to learn the blessing of hope. Verse 25, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So hope is the cure for envy. It's the cure for fear. It's the cure for doubt. It's the cure for depression. And finally, it's the cure for frustration. Just notice again how in the brief course of this really short prayer, David has moved from frustration to perfect satisfaction. He begins by pleading with God to hear as he sets forth what he's convinced is a just cause. He's frustrated by the injustice of of this undeserved calamity that he has been surrounded with. But by the end of the prayer, he is satisfied by the undeserved blessing that he knows will be his in eternity. You see this same pattern in a lot of the Psalms. David often begins with a tone of frustration and anxiety, only to end with an expression of confidence that stems from solid hope in the course of a simple psalm. So what changed? Was it David's circumstances? No, it was only his perspective. In the beginning, his own troubles were what filled his vision. And that was all he could see. But in the process of praying, God refocused his vision so that he could see more clearly and further into the future and anchor his soul in the, in the promise of that ultimate blessing, eternal blessing, so that he could let go of the frustration of that which is merely immediate. That kind of hope is only possible through Christ because Christ redeems us from sin and secures the hope of heaven on our behalf. And think about this. If heaven were a reward for my own righteousness, if heaven were something I had to earn by my own merit through good works, I promise you my life would be dominated by an oppressive sense of dread because I know I don't deserve it. All I would have is what Scripture says, a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume God's adversaries. That would be what would hang over my head if salvation were not by grace. But because, frankly, I know I don't deserve heaven. If, as Jesus taught, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, if the only standard God approves of is perfect righteousness, if, as James says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point is guilty of all, If that's all the truth we had in Scripture, I would be doomed. My own heart would confirm that verdict. But heaven is nevertheless the sure hope of everyone who believes because Christ himself met the standard of perfect righteousness, absolute perfection. And he died to pay the price of sin so that all who believe in him are united by him with faith, are united with him by faith. They are covered with his perfect righteousness. And that is the gospel, that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live unto righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. That's 1 Peter 2.24. And 1 Peter 1, verse 3, 
according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. And that very hope, that living hope, is what David was expressing in our psalm. Romans 8, 24 again. In this hope we are saved. If you lack that hope, you need to lay hold of Christ by faith. And if you are in Christ, but you're feeling the weight of this world's troubles, you need to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. We have this hope as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. That's Hebrews 6, verses 18 and 19. And it describes precisely what this psalm celebrates, the hope of eternal redemption that stands as a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul, even in times of the worst earthly distress. So remember that and and let your mind go to that truth every time you find yourself burdened by the cares of this life. Because, beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we shall see him as he is. We shall see his face in righteousness. That hope is the cure for all of life's troubles. And it points us to the true satisfaction of all our desires. That that glorious moment will come when I will awake in the Lord's presence with my heart and soul and mind all perfectly conformed to his likeness, and I will be satisfied with that forever. That puts all of the troubles of this life in perspective, doesn't it? I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Let's pray. Lord, strengthen our hearts to bear the adversities of this life in a fallen world and by your grace fix our hearts on the hope that is set before us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.